Hey, everyone. This is my interview with Dr. Chris Niebauer, author of No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism. Why is this important? Because you might want to know where suffering in your brain is located. What is it trying to do? What's its job? And what part of your brain, if, if it's left to its own devices, just lives in complete bliss and happiness and not realizing where you start and the rest of the world begins? What are the jobs of these parts of the brain? How do we navigate them to function with bliss? This is my interview with Dr. Chris Niebauer. Hey guys, studies are showing that 68% of people that watch podcasts regularly don't click the subscribe button. Do me a huge favor. If you like this content, click subscribe so other people know where to go for the cool stuff. Thank you. Welcome to Next Level Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Perry. For 25 years, I've helped professionals, first responders, celebrities, Olympians, teachers, moms, dads, and people just like you achieve their results better and faster than they thought possible. This is where measurable modern science meets the quantum. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive right in. Hey everybody, welcome to Next Level Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Perry, and I am here with Dr. Chris Niebauer. Uh, he earned his PhD in cognitive neuropsychology at the University of Toledo, specializing in the differences between the left and right sides of the human brain. He's the author of the best-selling book, No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism. And then he wrote a workbook that followed that. Uh, he was a professor at State University in Pennsylvania for 22 years, where he taught courses on consciousness, mindfulness, left and right brain differences, and artificial intelligence. You might have heard him on Buddha at the Gas Pump or um, uh, the Chopra Well with Deepak Chopra, as well as other podcasts. Welcome, Chris. It's great to be here. Uh, your your book uh, was brain candy to me. I I just uh, I salivate when I read books like that. <laughs> In fact, I, I mostly read it twice um, because and, and I, I actually probably more than that because I kept having to rewind it and listen to things that you said because um, understanding the differences between the right and left hemisphere is um, is is true. It changes your paradigm. <laughs> And it's just a good time. I, I just lucked out with the timing because I, I ended up getting a PhD in left-right brain differences right at a time when it was it was falling in popularity because so many people, it got so popular within the general public, the scientific community started saying, well, it's just pop science. And and um, and then this whole thing about, well, can you be left-brained, right-brained? And then a couple studies came out saying, that, well, the whole thing is a myth. So it was really uh, becoming not so popular. And then Ian McGilchrist wrote this amazing book, uh, The Master and His Emissary. And it was, it's about a thousand pages. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, I'm not. But it, oh, it's, it, it really documents thousands, probably more than 10,000 studies looking at how the left and right brain differ uh, and, and the, the function, the neuroanatomy. I mean, just they differ on so many different levels and why they differ. I, ha so I that, had no idea there was any controversy in that. I, I thought that was well understood. Uh, that's that's shocking. Well, I'm glad to hear that because it it, it really should be 
well understood. I mean, it's one of the most obvious things about the brain. You look at it and you're like, it's not one big brain. <laughs> so nature, evolution, God, however you want to put it, went through quite a bit of trouble to create two really separate brain. I mean, even the blood supply is separate. And then you connect them with 800 million nerve fibers. So that's pretty but, special. And then but, men and women have a different connection uh, in the middle and, and uh, left-handers and right-handers, uh, different, different corpus callosum. That's uh, another interesting uh, uh, topic. Um, yeah, fascinating. It, um, anyway, God's got a sense of humor because, uh, I mean, you, you, the way you describe in your book the differences between the right and, and left brain and the studies that have been done um, really shifts the way we look at, uh, at life. Um, I mean, I've profoundly shifted uh, my awareness and uh, I, I can't wait to just dig into all this and, and talk about it with our audience. Um, so uh, w when everybody else was kind of losing interest in it, what was it that propelled you to have interest in it? Well, I just, to, for me, it was always a really practical, it was an interesting way to get into the brain because when you get into neuroscience, there's a huge amount of variability. I mean, there are some neuroscientists who are obsessed about single cells and they, they never leave one, the study of a single brain cell. And they're fast. And I love listening to them because they're just, they get so excited about the function of a single brain cell. And that's wonderful, but it wasn't for me. I wanted something that was... Uh, more macro level, just kind of like stepping back a little bit. And the, and the left and right sides of the brain seem to be uh, perfect because they were so uh, attached to different cognitive styles. And so it was a way I could look at uh, like what we might think of as high level psychology, but still uh, localize it to different parts of the brain without getting too uh, particular meticulous. And so... Um, and when Joe Balty Taylor's book came out, My Stroke of Insight, that the whole world was reminded of how really different the left and right, and how um, you know one side shuts down, your whole psychology changes. I love. Uh, I'm I'm so excited. She's going to be on our show uh, next year after the holidays, and um, I, I'm super excited that uh, you know that people are starting to learn this stuff. And and um, for me, it's like. We think we understand what we understand. And when you uh, can you I, I, I don't even know where to start because I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> um, can you talk about the study that shows that uh, when they then when they back in the 60s, when they severed the, the corpus callosum because they wanted to help seizure patients and they the fellow the people involved with this, I believe, won a Nobel Prize in the in the 90s or sorry, in the 80s. Um, but uh, what happened to these people when they cut the corpus callosum? What were they able to determine and find out about the right and left hemispheres and how did they do it? So many fascinating things happened because it was such a radical surgery. And from a medical perspective, the, the surgery was successful. And so these people were having seizures and that seizure activity across that corpus callosum, that connecting bridge between the two sides of the brain, and then the whole brain would be involved in the seizure. So by severing it, it actually kept it to one side. It really minimized their uh, seizure activity. And so they were able to go back to living uh, normal lives, which was fantastic from a you know basic medical perspective. But from a philosophical and psychological perspective, it was really shocking because on the one hand, they woke up from surgery. Imagine having major brain surgery. I mean... Neuroscientists will argue this. They'll say, no, you have one brain because it's so interconnected. 
But you're going in and you're really splitting it. Well, I mean, they call them the split brain patients because they are literally, you know, the left and right are no longer communicating with each other. And the patients in general woke up and they, they didn't feel any different. Mm. They didn't feel psychologically changed. And that's kind of telling in and of itself that there wasn't anything that seemed to be different from them, from their own inner world perspective. But when they went back into life, they realized that there was this conflict that seemed to be uh, really mysterious to them. And it really backs up this idea because I take ourself, our self-concept, I put it in the left brain and, and many people do that uh, for a lot of good reason. And the split brain people uh, seem to back that up because, and again, for your audience, uh, one of the strange things about how we are wired is that the left brain is actually controlling and monitoring the right half of the body. The right brain controls the left half of the body. And so we have this massive crossover. No one's entirely sure exactly why you would set up a system like that. Um, but uh, language is mostly in the left brain. It's true that all kinds of interesting language functions are in the right also, but the bulk of language is in the left brain. So as I talk right now, there's a small center in the left brain called Broca's area, and that's allowing me to talk with you. And so most of speech is in the left brain. So when you're talking to a split brain patient, you're really talking to their left brain, or at least when they respond, they're responding with their left brain. And so uh, first thing, there's this thing called disconnection syndrome. And so they went back into their normal lives. And what they found is um, this, this conflict where the, where the left hand, so this is the right brain, was doing these mysterious things. And so one patient would uh, reach into her closet to, to find a dress to wear that day. And the left hand would come and put the dress back. And, you know, that's, well, you know, I'll give you a couple more stories for, for your listeners because these are so fascinating. Um, another patient had gone back, finally uh, couldn't smoke. I was a smoker, but of course couldn't smoke in the hospital during the surgery or anything. I was so happy to get home so he could start smoking again. And he lights up a cigarette and starts smoking, but the left hand put the cigarette out. <laughs> <laughs> and you could imagine that would be pretty unsettling for someone. I mean, imagine if you're like, you've been waiting to smoke for a long time. You finally smoke again, and the left hand comes and puts it out. And this happened over and over again. And uh, so while that seems really strange, and I always tell people, like, it is, <laughs> Um, but we all suffer, we, I won't say suffer, but we experience this to certain degrees, even without having a split brain. So why, because, why did the left hand put it out? Because the right brain didn't want to smoke. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. This is great. Uh, and, and it, so I'll give you one more story to show you how, uh, again, just how uh, complex this it would be for if you were experiencing this. And they, they asked people, uh, a whole bunch of questions, but they had them give thumbs up for yes and thumbs down for no. Now, I have an intact corpus callosum, so you don't really know what's going on because my brain really is acting as a functional whole unit because it's interconnected. In a split brain, that's not true. So in a split brain, when their right hand gives a thumbs up, that's the left brain doing it. And when the left hand is thumbs up, that's the right brain doing it. Now, the good news is for most of the questions, the two sides of the brain were in sync with each other. But for some, interesting, they were not. And so they asked one patient, they said, do you miss your girlfriend? And they got this. 
That's hilarious. And, so so cognitively, as far as his uh, categorization, there was one answer. And as far as his feelings was another one. And so clearly one side of the brain missed his girlfriend, another side did not. Now, I know that sounds bizarre, but then I would always talk and I tell people, well, is it really that bizarre? Because we have an interesting language when we, like if you break up with someone and then you say, well, do you miss your girlfriend? We say, part of me does, but part of me doesn't, which is a very interesting way to put it. It makes it sound like we're not one total interconnected self either. And so in a way, all of us reflect the split brain patients just on it. We're just turned down quite a bit. So the, the split brain patients were turned up in the sense that they really had the, the two sides of the brain isolated, but we have conflict. And they, they did the same thing. They said, um, it, this was the seventies. I think maybe Nixon was president. And they said, what do you, how do you think the, the president is performing? And they got, you know, again, you know, one side of the brain thought the president was doing well. Another side, uh, uh, didn't. And that's interesting. Even in politics, uh, the two sides of the brain can uh, disagree with each other. God's got a sense yes. of humor. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a great way to put it, because um, <laughs> I find that uh, the, the, the more I write, the more I uh, explore connecting neuroscience and Eastern philosophy. That's really the way I would put it. I find God has a, a really good sense of humor. And if we're open to it, uh, we, we find ourselves laughing quite often. Over so it. you talked about who was the um, refresh my memory. Uh, I'm I'm going to get it, but I'm going to mash it up. The the one that was studying the split right and left brain. Well, it started off with Sperry, Roger Sperry. Yeah, okay. but he was more into it. He's the one who won the Nobel Prize, and he was more into it from the for the medical yeah. part. But it was Michael Gazan again. Yeah, that's the guy who discovered the interpreter, and that was just such an amazing discovery because what they did was. They would send met. So again, they brought these people back to the lab because they were doing these strange uh, behaviors. And once they got them back in the lab, they would send messages. Now, again, because the two sides of the brain are separate and the right brain can read, it just doesn't control language. So they would have them watch a screen and they would send messages to the right brain, something like raise your hand. So they'd raise their hand. And then they asked the patient. Now, remember when they respond, this is the left brain that's responding and it has no clue why they just raised their hand. It's totally in the dark. And they would ask them, well, why did you just raise your hand? And what the patient should have said was, I don't know. <laughs> they should have said, I have no clue. I, you know, I've been disconnected from that right brain for a long time. So when it does its stuff with the left hand, I have no clue why it's doing it. But it didn't. It effortlessly and confidently made up an, a story, an interpretation. And so that's why Gazaniga ended up calling the left brain the, the interpreter. Because uh, what he concluded was after doing all these studies on these patients, the left brain will make up a story based on the evidence around it. It doesn't question the story and it believes it wholeheartedly. And that isn't just true for split brain patients. So we see it with all of us. Uh, we are all left brain storytellers. And this was one of the most jaw-dropping things about your book. And you said in your book, this should be household information all over the world. Because, I mean, to realize that we have this machinery that we're interpreting the world with that literally, if it doesn't know the answer to something, it just confidently makes up an answer. Like, um, you know, the shovel doesn't go with plowing, you know, taking the snow off the, the sidewalk. It goes with cleaning out the chicken coop. I mean, really crazy stuff that it just if, if it didn't have the, the resources to come up with an answer, it just made one up. And I would do this with my 
uh, class and I would do it when I give talks, uh, I would do something anomalous, you know, some kind of anomaly. So maybe I'd, I'd wear a couple biker rings, really huge skull rings, and I'd go in there, but I'd also have like maybe a tie on. <laughs> And you, and then I, I'd talk for a little bit, and then I would ask them. I'd say, "How many of you have been spinning stories about these rings?" And then you know, people would raise their hand. I'd be like, "Well, we thought maybe you were a biker on the weekends." And so you could, the the left brain is always going; it's always coming up. Anything that it looks out, and anything that it sees, it starts trying to explain it. And that that at and, least makes some kind of sense. I mean, the one the studies that you were looking at. I mean, it just it would come up with the most nonsensical things. Um, and that's that, that was the real, uh, really the most important part of it is that the left brain was often wrong. <laughs> and that's the scary. So when we're coming up with all these stories, and, and again, because the left brain does language, it's not just actually when I'm speaking out loud, but it's actually when we're doing the voice in the head. And so if you're just innocently sitting there, uh, you can hear the voice in the head creating stories about all, the whole world around you. And it does this all the time. And when you're starting a meeting, um, you know, you're walking down the street and, and, and someone's looking at you and you start coming up with some story. And so we are hopelessly storytelling creatures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love for you to uh, share with our audience um, emotionally what this did for you, because you um, were looking to science to help you when your father died and how much emotional pain you were in. Um, and science actually didn't have the answers. You ended up turning more to the East. And um, can you tell us about that? It did so in a number of ways. And so, um, so yeah, I was, I was just 19. My father had died very unexpectedly. And uh, it threw me into this neurosis where I was continuously obsessed with death. I just, it was one of this, and of course, what was happening is my left brain interpreter was just creating all kinds of stories, trying to make sense of something that came about very unexpected. And it became this challenge of like, can you beat death? You know, or, and, and also a day-to-day -day battle of just worrying about dying at any moment. And so I, the more I got into psychology, I kept looking for some kind of answer. Like, okay, if you're really anxious, what kind of answers does psychology have? And psychology, of course, has all kinds of answers from Freud to cognitive behavioral therapy to drug therapy. And so, you know, psychology has its answers. But when I turned to the East, I really found something very different in the way that it dealt with death because it, it dealt with life differently. And so in the East, there wasn't this fear of death. And so much of it came down to the question of what is it that's, that you think is going to die? And I got really into Alan Watts. He, he was always like kind of my, well, I would say my first Love mentor. Alan Watts. All this. And he really is very much unappreciated, I would say. Um, and of course, I say that as, you know, a huge Alan Watts fan who spent thousands of hours listening to his lectures. So of course, I would think he was under, because he, his ability to introduce Eastern philosophy, uh, whether it be Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, his ability to take that and present it to a Western audience in a way that we could really appreciate uh, was it's a it was it was rare, particularly back then, uh, because he was doing this stuff in the '60s and '70s. But when I started exploring this concept of no self, I was realizing that um, you know most so much of our fear of death is the fear that the self is going to die, 
But the interesting thing, when you when the, the self, at least what you think of the self, this again, this left brain, because it's a storyteller, so naturally it's going to tell one story and after another. And one of these stories is the story of the self. And from the East, when you, not just an intellectual recognition, because so much of Eastern philosophy goes beyond what we would call the intellect. And it starts uh, taking all the intellectual arguments apart and getting to core feelings about uh, who you are, uh, what is reality. And you start experiencing that the self is just a story. And that as a huge radical paradigm shift on your life, because uh, rather than the self worrying, terrified that it's going to die one day, there's this experience that the self is just a story and that in a way you die all the time. And what I mean by that is you, and I had this experience, one of my first experiences I was, um, because I mostly rode bicycles. I didn't have a car till I think I think I was 30. <laughs> but I was changing the tire of my bicycle because I had a flat. And for a while, maybe 20 minutes, I just simply wasn't there as a as a self. I was just so mindful and 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 um in the moment. And I it, you know, Machik Samhai would call this flow. I was having a flow moment where I I, I was there was no me. It was just changing the bicycle tire. And I, that, that was very interesting because I was like, where was I during that? And, and, and so, you know, this recognition that we're not always around as much as we think. And so we have the, and of course, that's what happens with mindfulness and meditation. Uh, we start these practices where we're not obsessed with the, the ego and, 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 and the storytelling of the left brain. We get back to what we're doing. And so if you're washing dishes, you're washing dishes. <laughs> and you don't need itself it, to do that. Yeah. In Jill Bolte-Taylor's book, that um, uh, she describes how when she didn't have access through stroke uh, to her chattering left brain, um, and because she, um, and forgive me, I don't remember her specialization. She's some type of neuroscientist. Surgeon? Is she, what is she? She's a neuroanatomist, which I thought was particularly yeah. ironic because... She, the, one of the functions of the left brain is categorization, and that's what she did for a living. <laughs> she categorized the brain. But as she was suffering the stroke, I mean, what a perfect person. Actually, Eben Alexander is going to be on the show, too, and um, another perfect person, you know, brain surgeon to become more brain dead than any human being ever and then come back and become normal and report about it. Wow. <laughs> God's got a sense of humor. <laughs> but when that chattering left brain, um, which is honestly exhausting more than I think most people realize... Um, especially in our culture, uh, it slowly just disintegrates and turns off. And in Jill Bolte-Taylor's case, through a stroke, um, and because she's a neuroanatomist, she was able to understand exactly what was happening to her. She knew. Uh, and, and when she had that left brain shut down, she was just in this state of bliss. And um, that's what we all so desperately want. And for, you know, people that are very into meditation like myself and um, the Joe Dispenza people, which I'm a big fan of and participate in a lot and, and share meditation with others. And of, of course, that's the goal. <laughs> so um, can you talk to that? It's, uh, you know, because we live in what seems to be a 3D world. You know, we wake up, we brush our teeth, we take a shower, we eat, we do our stuff. Um, but that requires that chattering left brain. Um, and I know you have a workbook on this. So how... How does one get started in this and how does one, because it is exhausting to have that 
chatterbrain going on all the time. And and I think most people, I, I honestly, I think the use of antidepressants and all that stuff would be practically nil if the chatterbrain could be turned off. <laughs> I, I agree. That's what their goal is. And, and, and that uh, chattering left brain uh, is the source of, for most people, it's the source of suffering. Because we've achieved so much in our society. We're not, we're not trying to, for a lot of us, uh, we're not hunter-gatherers. We're not trying to find our food in the woods. Uh, we've got the basic necessities of life. And yet, here we are, so successful. We, 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 we you know, our, our basic, for so many of us, our basic needs are met. And yet, happiness eludes us because... The, of this chattering of the left brain. Well, you brain. see celebrities committing suicide and, you know, all these famous people that have it all, um, but that chatter brain is just unacceptable. And they've lived with it for so long. And not only did they live with it, we're a society that actually encourages it. And so, you know, from the time we started talking, uh, the self-image was built by those around us. We were encouraged uh, to have an idea of the self. And, and then you can tell this is cultural because there are cultures that don't do this. And so, um, you know, I talk quite a bit about, quite about, quite a lot about the Pita Han and they're a small, um, uh, almost extinct, uh, culture of people in South America. And, uh, they're so different than us. Uh, they don't have the chattering left brain. Um, and the interesting thing is their life is filled with hardships that so many of us could not even imagine. Death is just a part of their life. But the most remarkable thing about them is that they are often described as the happiest people on the planet. And the reason they're so happy is because they don't have that endless chatter of the left brain. They're not storytellers. It's, it's somehow they were able to... So if we look at our culture, we've turned up the left brain and at the same time, invalidated much of what the right brain does. You go to this culture, the Pitahan, and what they've done is they've cranked up the right brain and they've almost turned, they, they have the left brain on when they need it on, which is very rare. And so they use it when, it, when they need to use it, but they're not continuously um, talking to themselves. They don't tell stories. What are they, they doing tell, all day long? But most of the time they're uh, surviving. And so they live very close to our hunter-gatherer uh, ancestors. So they're, they're finding food. So they, they'll spend most of their day fishing and uh, doing basic survival tasks, which takes up quite, but doesn't take up all their time. And so, uh, but when they have free time, they're not gossiping. They're not telling stories. And they live so much in the here and now that if I started telling you a story about someone I talked to today, you you probably wouldn't be very interested in it because you 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 didn't directly experience it, and so the way uh, so the fantastic book I would suggest it to your audience um, it's called um, Don't Sleep There Are Snakes, and this is the book about the Pitahan tribe, and um, the the thing that they they've just grew up as kids they, you know this is what they're taught in their culture is the immediacy of the moment to live in the moment. And so they, that's why they're not storytellers. They have no theater. They have no art. <laughs> I mean, everything is about the here and now. Oh, wow. And that, and that seems to be the trick of happiness. So in the workbook, you know, it's really, you, it, we've done this for so long. It's become such a habit. There's no switch, uh, unfortunately. You can just 
well, for Joe Bolte-Taylor, she she kind of had that with her left brain stroke. It's like all of a sudden the left brain chatter was switched off immediately. But even the way she puts it, you know, it, she doesn't want it off permanently. And well, she you can't really function well. if it's off. Yeah. I, you know, you have to have that left brain. Well, even the Peter Hahn, when they have to turn it on for whatever, what, what, what function would they need it for? I mean, you do need it to speak. Uh, you know, their language is very unique. They actually sing their language. And, <laughs> and so um, I, there's so few of them. We don't really know this, so I'm speculating here. But for most of us, if we had a left brain stroke, would probably be language impaired. My guess is if they had a left brain stroke, because they sing their language to such an extent, and it's so based on emotion and intonality, they probably would not be impaired with their language. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's shocking. Yeah. That's shocking. That's amazing. And a lot of the things that we, because again, it's a great question, you know, how to, you know, without, we need the left brain to function, but we're in this culture. In this culture, we need a left brain. To, so imagine, and I do this in the workbook because I say, you know, what if you didn't have numbers for a while? And what if you, and they, and this, the, the thing about the Peter Hahn, they actually have no numbers in their culture. And they have like, a, like if you have a lot of fish, they'll say they have a word for them. Well, that's a lot of fish. And if there's not many fish, then they'll have another word for that. But they don't count. And in fact, um, Dan Everett, who spent years, 30 some years on and off with, with this culture, uh, he tried to teach them how to count to 10. They couldn't do it. They had no ability to count. Wow. And so we, that, that left brain is so good at abstractions. Language is, of course, one of its basic talents as, as an abstract uh, uh, process um, that we don't really consider them as abstractions. Most people, we just think numbers are real, you know, and if I talk to anyone, I say, well, numbers aren't real. It's just something that's made up by the left brain. <laughs> Most people <laughs> wouldn't buy it, but we know that there must be something to that because there's a culture who uh, they're, they're so out of their left brain that numbers are meaningless to them. And the danger to uh, categorizing everything and uh having that left brain function being extreme is that we we end up mistaking the map for the territory. We end up thinking that the menu is the actual meal and the pita han are actually just experiencing the meal. Yeah. And that's and that's what see, that's, you know, it's, and the pita han know this. So they're very cautious. They they're not they look at us Westerners and they actually have a phrase for us. They call us crooked heads. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprisingly, because, yeah. I mean, here we are struggling to just be in the present moment. I mean, how how bizarre is that? And for them, that's their normal state is the present moment. And that's why they're so happy in spite of so many hardships. So what I do in the workbook is like, yeah, we don't have a switch for this, but we can actually slowly undo some of the, like you said, the map of the territory. There's nothing wrong with a map. It can be super useful. You just don't want to mistake it for the territory. And so the goal of the workbook was to look at all these left brain functions and recognize that they're useful tools, but they're not necessarily the reality that we mistake them for. Well, and if we don't understand that the pitfall of that left brain is if it doesn't know the answer, it just makes something up. So if you have a map and you're mistaking it for the territory and you don't know the answer and you're making something up, then things get kind of dangerous. <laughs> 
really not a, and it, and it, it leads you down such a path of suffering because so many of the things that are made up. So I went through endless stories. Oh, I'm going to die any second. I'm going to die. None of it ever came true, but I suffered because I believed that it was telling an accurate story. And so this is what happens when someone's sleeping and you know they're in a comfortable bed. Everything's fine. You know, every they're safe. But the left brain just starts telling stories because that's what it does. Mm-hmm. And it starts saying, well, tomorrow, you know, your job interview, you're going to mess it up. Or, or you know, you really start worrying about, uh, think about it, with COVID or with uh, the world conflicts that are going on. I mean, the left brain just puts one story after another. And of course, you're up all night. Well, and then the <laughs> news, you know, they, they make their money by having eyeballs. So, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. You've got that influence uh, affecting a lot of people. I don't I didn't put cable in my house when I moved here, so <laughs> I don't want it in here. <laughs> and that's what news usually feeds the left brain. And uh, and, you know, that's why I think it was Eckhart Tolle who reminded us, you know, what problems do you have right now? And if you really can bring that, what you're doing is you're you're not you're you're learning to ignore the left brain story because you're focused more on the present moment. And when you do that, for so many people, I do this do this with my classes, and it would literally blow their mind because when you shift it, and you say, "Well, I know you can't pay your rent, and I know, but what do you have wrong right now?" And no one has an answer <laughs> because well, the answer is nothing. And unless you're in physical pain. Most of us, when we bring it back to the immediacy of experience, like what's happening right now, nothing is wrong. And uh, and how do they receive that when you drew their attention to it? They they like it because it's their first hint of a right brain process. It's and and it feels very comforting. It's almost like that mystical experience that some have, where they recognize that everything is perfect, right as it is right now. And that's a right brain function because it's bringing it into right now rather than the fictitious past, the fictitious future. And I have my students do, so I think I talk about this in a workbook, but there are so many different ways to become aware of the, I was going to say playful musings of the left brain, but I'm looking at that from my perspective because it's really the source of suffering when you start off. But once you really get good at it and you start recognizing the left brain for what it does, it becomes more funny and more. And you start looking at the stories that the left brain tells and you become more amused by them than terrified of them. But I had them do a journal and I said, look, look this whole semester, anything you're worried about, because your left brain is going to say, well, this is going to happen. And I'm really, really worried about these tests or I'm going to fail this test. Write it all down and then write how confident you are that this is that it's an accurate story. And they did this all semester. And at the end of the semester, we, we put all the data together. The, the highest rate of accuracy for the left brain story was 50%. Whoa, that is so cool. It was the highest. I mean, some people's left brains were right about 20% of the time. I love that exercise. That's brilliant. And they well, as Mark it. Twain said, you know, I endured all these horrible hardships and, you know, 90% of it I just made up in my mind or however that went. Exactly. Same. Th- I think Seneca said we suffer more in imagination than we do in reality. And it's, it's just, but we don't, we have to experience it. We have to re, because the left brain is so, I mean, it's doing its job, which is to, you know, it's a survival tool. So it was trying to look out for us in the past. So it's a bit paranoid. And, you know, again, it, it looks at life very cartoonish. So it's very categorical. So it looks at everything as very simplistic. And, um, uh, but you can get good at seeing its workings. 
And the better you get at observing it, the more simultaneously you're distancing yourself from it. And that's the source of suffering. When, when, not, when It's not just the left brain telling stories, but you become those stories. You think that's you. And so one of the first exercises in the workbook is to help people recognize, like, look, this voice in the head is not who you are at all. And you can prove this because if it, well, one, if it, if, if it was accurately your identity, if that voice in the head was who you are, you could just stop talking. <laughs> and the very fact that you can't stop it proves that it's not you. But you could show that it's, I like to think of it as kind of a computer program because it's just uh, kind of autonomously just running. <laughs> and, and you could show that like, okay, you know, I'm going to, like, I'll give you a simple pattern and your audience can kind of follow along with this because it works 90% of the time. And you could say, you know, I'm going to give you two numbers, but don't finish the pattern. I need this go something like, you know, three, two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, most people, they hear one in their head. And, and you could do that over and over again with so many different uh, patterns. And finally, people start realizing, like, maybe that voice in the head isn't who I am because I can't control it. And, and, if it, and, and, it, and even when I try... And, 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 and I just would rather have silence. And, and you could, again, you know, this is an old Eastern practice. People say, well, just have inner silence for 30 seconds. And uh, people fail because the voice in the head turns back on. But all that shows, it's, and it starts to help people recognize that those tragic stories told by the left brain, they're not who you are. They're not accurate. And that all helps us to shift from a left brain Obsess, obsession to getting into the what the right brain does. And it's almost like an instant piece because, again, the way Joe Bolte Taylor talked about it, you know, this uh, nirvana like experience that she had, we can bring those and, and the Peter Hunt, how they were right brained and so happy all the time. And we can bring those experiences into just our ordinary lives. And, uh, and, that, and it sounds simple and it is simple. It's just not easy. Because and and we and we probably should have started with uh, can you can you briefly describe what exactly the left brain and and most of us are right-handed and of course most right-handed people do have more of that uh, verbal ability left-handed people are known to be more creative which makes sense because they're firing and wiring those those neurons in the right hemisphere can you explain for our audience kind of exactly what the left brain is up to and doing all the time and what the right brain, what are the responsibilities of both halves? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, people have been searching for this, like the simple way, like what's the fundamental difference between the left and right brain? They've been searching for this for, I mean, very explicitly for about a hundred years, but this goes back even, you know, a thousand or so years. I mean, People have known we've got a distinct left and right brain. How did so they know that so early on? I mean, how did they get sure. a clue about that? Just from doing uh, autopsies or, 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 you know, Oh, warfare. because obviously, it's, yeah, the brain, when you yeah see the brain, it there's this, yeah. this chunk that is connecting the two hemispheres, and they're two obvious separate hemispheres. And uh, battle, uh, people recognize that different things happened if you were wounded on the left side versus the right. One of the more obvious things is that left side uh, wounds would cause uh, language problems. And so, uh, in fact, it, so many things happen to the right brain that were not obvious 
So people would have right brain injury and it just wasn't that obvious. And for a long time, I mean, actually talking up until the, like the 1950s, particularly because the right brain didn't speak, which is to say it didn't control language, people didn't think much of it. I mean, people didn't think it was intelligent. Uh, they didn't think it uh, did very much. And that's interesting too. But of course, as a species, we are so language dominant. I mean, there are all kinds of other animals on, on the planet. And, and of course, we're the ones who talk all the time. And uh, so, um, and, you know, speech is, you know, one of the, you know, you have even a slight grammatical error during an interview and you may not get the job. So we hold language as, as, as a reflection of our general intellectual abilities. And so that, that all reflects us being a left brain culture. So one of the more obvious things, again, the left brain does language, but it, it does more than, than that. In fact, one of the most important left brain functions is categorization. And it's, it's so important that some people said that that's the reason the that the left brain took on language because language is categorical and the left brain does categories so well that that's why it became dominant for language. And so you start talking about categories, which is, it's, in itself is a very fascinating uh, process. And it's, and it's something that, you know, you're talking about mistaking the map for the territory. Boy, this is a classic case where we categorize and then we believe that to be reality. And, what and do you we do have to remember that that half of the brain's the stuff that makes stuff up when it doesn't know the answer. Oh, and, exa and that's exactly what categorization is. It's making something up. And so, when you, so, what is, so what is categorization? Well, look, when you look at the, the world, there's diversity everywhere. Nothing is the same. I mean, I could take two blades of grass. You can't even find two blades of grass that are the same. Two, two trees that are the same. So when you get into like the particulars, the whole everything in the world around you is unique. And so, uh, but that's not what the way the left brain views the world. That's a very right brain uh, process. The left brain actually can have all kinds of differences, but it looks for one thing that may be in common, and then it categorizes. It creates one group based on one quality. And so, and this is actually quite helpful. And, you know, my son plays soccer and it's super helpful if everyone on one team wears the same color shirt. <laughs> that really helps. And, and so, so they be, but once everyone has the same color shirt on, instead of being a bunch of individuals, they're one group, they're one team. And this is what the left brain excels at. It's continuously collapsing across the uniqueness of reality and focusing on one quality that a bunch of things that are truly different, but they may have one thing in common, and then it groups them and creates a category. And it's doing this so often that, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you combine that with then the second mistake is to mistake this category for something real, because categories don't exist out in reality. And that's a very... That's a, getting a little bit more advanced and intense when you start talking like that because people will pause and they'll say, well, I don't, they seem like they're out there. <laughs> and, and, and if people are familiar with psychology, you know, the Gestalt psychologist talked about all these grouping principles that we would, uh, and that's all the left brain because the left brain, again, is very good at ignoring all the uniqueness and focusing on one single thing. So the, it's actually an intentional uh, quality. So the, 
the way we pay attention is different in the left and right sides of the brain too. So the left brain is very narrow. Its attention is narrow. It's like a tiny little spotlight. So it can only focus on one thing at a time. So look at language. Language is one word at a time. And so, uh, but the right brain has this vast, uh, uh, it can pay attention to the big picture, everything all at once. And so it's really, really different because uh, when you categorize, you have to narrow your attention down to one thing that this group has in common. And then suddenly you ignore everything else. And so categorization is, it's, it, and you say, well, okay, well, that all sounds very academic, but it is real world implications for it. And so when you go to something like race, and, and so you have these biologists now that are saying like race isn't even a meaningful biological uh, concept. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. And so, you know, the left brain, what it does is it takes, um, it just so easily groups people by, by what it thinks is one quality that this group may have in common. And it thinks that group exists. Yeah. But the group doesn't exist out there. Yeah. It exists. It literally only exists in the left brain. So tell us more about that lovely left brain. Uh, sorry, the, the right brain uh, where Jill Bolte Taylor was hanging out because she was blissed out but really couldn't function. So she did eventually come back and become functional. Um, so what's going on in that, uh, in the right brain, that creative side, um, and, and what's it like to hang out there? Well, one of the things that she described very accurately when she said that her left brain had, had shut down, and she said that there was no place where I ended and the rest of the universe began. So wow, and that, that's just one of these categorical boundaries. So the reason I feel like I'm here is because the left brain is so obsessed with creating categories, these false boundaries between groups, that I feel like I'm different from everything else. But when that left brain categorical machine shut down, suddenly the right brain, which is has a much more vast attention span, and it's really important because what that means is it can take in the whole picture. And it suddenly, instead of seeing you, us, as individuals separated from the rest of the universe, we feel like we're part of it. And so and isn't, doesn't that explain why the Easterners that are much more in tune with that side of the brain, that, that left, the, the right brain, that uh, they just view death differently? It's not, it's just shedding one experience and being part of another. It's a, it's a flow. It's everything. You know, I love that. There's this, the shortest definition of Buddhism ever was everything changes. And that is a very good description of what the right brain, how the right brain perceives the world. And it's a very non-category. So the, again, the left brain is, and think about how much we categorize. We can't even take time without categorizing it. And so we say, well, it's Monday or so I can put Friday. Is it Friday? I suppose like yeah, it is. So today, <laughs> so today's supposed to be Friday, right? And, but it isn't really Friday. I mean, that's just a, that, that doesn't exist in reality. That's that the Friday literally exists in the left brain. Amazing. But that doesn't, and it's useful as long as we don't take it seriously. But the weird thing is, is people do take it seriously. So for example, Mondays, uh, people really have a psychologically hard time with Mondays. And in fact, more, the, pe more people die of a heart attack on Mondays. Yeah. That's the highest day of the week to have heart, uh, uh, have a heart attack. Well, no, again, that's because you're taking a left brain fiction, a categorical fiction of the left brain Monday, and you're taking it seriously. And But Mondays, I love going in when, when I would lecture on Mondays and I would say, you know, Monday doesn't exist. 
And people would look at you very, you know, again, very strange. But what I'm doing is the t Monday doesn't exist, the right brain. The right brain is, seeing, is perceiving reality as a continuous flow of change. And it doesn't break it into discrete um, uh, categories. And so when you get to something like Taoism, and I would see students and, you know, it was really popular to have like maybe the, the yin-yang symbol and get a tat. A lot of my students had tattoos of yin-yang symbols, very popular. And I start talking, well, what does that mean? You know, what, what was the point of Taoism? And it's a very right brain uh, symbol because in Taoism, everything is connected. And so uh, everything defines everything else. And so white defines black, black defines white. Uh, good days it's, to find it's bad It's the basis days. for Chinese medicine, and that's that's my background is Chinese medicine. Oh, awesome! It's it's the every, it's in, everything's interconnected and then continues to flow in and out of itself, and you can't have one without the other. You, and, and and that's oh, what that's a great. It's very difficult to get there without the right brain, because the right brain gets that. So in the left brain, it categorizes, but it believes that those categories are genuinely opposites. And so there's good and bad, and um, and there's good and bad days. And think of so I I would talk about this often, like how how often we want people to have good days. I mean, if you look at it, people will say, "Have a good day to you." Almost all, you know, like ten times a day, have a good day, have a good. And that's a very left brain uh, function because the left brain once it categorizes, then it just wants all the good. And it and but the right brain being very Taoist and seeing the connection between all categories, realizes that the bad days and the good days are interconnected <laughs> and you can't separate them. And so the right brain, instead of saying, have a good day, the, you know, I would play around with this and have fun. And I just tell people, have the day you're going to have. <laughs> and if you, and if you all, if you only had good days, they wouldn't be good anymore. Well, and doesn't doesn't quantum physics and the Heisenberg principle fall in there too? That what you notice, you actually experience, and and that becomes your reality. So you know, you you get the reticular activator focusing on what is good in your day, then you get more of that. And if you get the reticular activator focused on what is not good in your day, then you get more of that. So and, what, what's real? <laughs> and and when when you have that recognition that the good and the bad are connected, you really can't have a bad day anymore because the bad days are like what make the good days happen. Yay. And like I tell my son this all the time when it, like if his, his team loses, like I'm like, good. I think mean, he looks at me, he doesn't, I'm not sure he buys it, but I'm like, if you, if, if you didn't have lo losers, you couldn't have winners. The two are the yin and yang. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, uh, you know, you, no one likes losing. But if there weren't, if you didn't lose a few games, you couldn't win. It's impossible. No one could win if everyone won. And it wouldn't feel good if you won all the time. There was that it episode of the Twilight Zone. Do you remember that, where this gambler goes to to heaven and you know he's like winning all the time and you know he's winning and the next thing he's in the penthouse sweep and he's got all the women all over him and you know after about four days of this, he's like. Oh, God, this is awful. He says, God, uh, you know, send me to the other place. That was way more fun. And you hear this sinister voice that says, oh, what makes you think this isn't the other place? <laughs> yeah, I haven't, thought, I haven't seen that one, but it sounds really, really good because, um, you know, you can get very cosmic with all that. And, uh, and it's some of the foundations of Hinduism. 
Tell us about real... that, because, you know, there's this concept that God, you know, got bored with just being blissed out and perfect all the time and, you know, wanted to experience play. And so one of the ways I talk about that, I um, I forget if it was in the workbook, maybe, or, or the original one, but um, I say, well, look, you know, how much fun would it be if you went gambling in your own casino? You know, I mean, you own the casino and then you go gambling and it just wouldn't be much fun because if you win, you lose. And if you lose, you win. There's no real winning and losing. And of course, that would be reflecting what, you know, this all powerful consciousness that create the all creating power of the universe. I mean, how much fun could you really have? But if you could forget that you own the universe, or that you own the casino, if you could forget that you were the all-powerful universe, then stuff would start getting fun. They would, they would, then the adventure would really begin because then all of a sudden you forget you own this casino. So if you did win, you'd be very excited. But of course, if you lost, you'd be pretty bummed out. But all none of that excitement, none of the adventure could happen unless you forgot who you truly were. Well, and you also think about it. I mean, what do humans in like this incredibly advanced society want to go do for entertainment? They go to a movie that convinces them that they're in some horrible circumstance, you know, and the more real it is, the more surround sound, the more they can convince themselves they're they're in that horrible circumstance, um, the better. <laughs> yeah. And so, so there's something about the human condition that that craves experience. And we want a vast array of experiences. And, and we, we want to be freaked out and we want to be afraid and, and, and we want to be sad. You know, I actually offered my students a deal. I said, look, uh, you can take this pill and you'll never have another negative emotion ever again. And they sort of pause and they're like, I couldn't, I couldn't get anyone to take it. Wow. What a great experiment. I mean, and, mind experiment. I mean, it sounds like we think we'd take it. But then when you pause and you go, do I really want to take it? Do I really want a life where I'm never sad again? And so that helps because it, it helps us recognize that the range of, of experiences that we're having, like according to the left brain, it wants to avoid all the bad and just have all the good. But the right brain sees the connection between the good and the bad. And the right brain sees how all things are interconnected. And then it starts becoming more of an experience junkie. Like it's like it just like, you know, when you, when you look at like, why would we have this? Well, I so, so we're going to kind of play a little bit of non-dualism here because I love to end the books with non-dualism. But the question I always have for people, I say, uh, you know, well, if the universe is non-dualistic, why is it playing this game of dualism? Why is it pretending to be billions of individuals when it's really one uh consciousness but but then the answer is play play and experience and and I, you know if you ha if you're an all-knowing consciousness you could never be surprised but isn't it so one of the most fascinating things that we get to experience is not knowing what's going to happen like what's going to happen in the next few minutes we really don't know but if we are an all-powerful all-knowing consciousness nothing could ever surprise us so what happens we, we forget that we own a casino. We forget that we're that all-powerful entity. And we and as they say, you know, where would God hide? Well, a place no one would look, humans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever read the Neil Donald Walsh book, uh, Little Soul on the Sun? It's a really sweet uh, children's book, but basically it's about being in that blissful, all-everything state and then wanting to go have an experience. And so these 
beings incarnate and one of them says, well, okay, well, you're going to be the bad guy and I'm going to be the good guy, but, you know, forgive me because, you know, I'm, it's not going to be pleasant. I'm, well, okay, we're going to play this game. And, and anyway, it's, it's just a sweet little uh, depiction of what you just described. Oh, I'll have to check it out. It sounds very, you know, that's the stories Alan Watts would tell. And, uh, and it's not just from the East, you know, it, 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 it's one of these, you know, I was describing, so my daughter is in college right now and, and she's in some philosophy classes and, and, and it, they were considering human suffering because that's a tough one. You know, why do we suffer? And, and, but, you know, when you put it in that framework and you're like, well, look, it's, it's, a, it, it's a bad dream. Why do we have bad dreams? But well, we wake up and then we recognize, well, it was just a dream. And so when you look at suffering, in a sense, it's just a range of experiences. And, you, and to, have, to have bliss, you have to have, the, it's all the yin and yang. To have bliss, you have to have some suffering. And when you put, but it's, none of it's real. And see, that's, that's the thing about the left brain. It's so surface level. It, it takes this reality as the ultimate reality. And, uh, and it takes its categorized reality as real. And, and, and then when you play it like that, then suffering seems evil. It's, it, 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 it's horrific. And it seems like, well, what kind of, you know, creator would make a world with suffering into it? Well, that's because, the, again, the left brain is so narrowly focused. It only focuses on the suffering that's happening, right? It, it can't step back. So when I step back... So if someone asked me and they said, well, if you could go back and not suffer in your 20s, not have this outrageous anxiety, would you take that deal? And I would never take it at all. I wouldn't take it because we wouldn't be talking right now. If you talk to most people who have been through some horrible suffering experience, well, I wouldn't, I don't know if I can say most, but many, 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 um, uh, they, they would say they wouldn't give up the experience because something amazing came from it. Um, actually, I just interviewed a guy named Dr. Ming Wang who escaped the Cultural Revolution. He had to learn how to play an instrument and sing in order to not be sent to a slave labor camp. He was hiding in a university while the Red Guard was storming um, and, and breaking 37 of his mother's bones. It took her two years to recover. But when he was hiding in that closet, he actually um, r remembered something uh, when he became a, a world-class laser eye surgeon that uh, allowed him to restore vision to children who ha are blind. Um, so, um, you know, his message is, and there's a movie released on his life this month uh, uh, from Universal, uh, is that, you know, suffering has, uh, there, there, there's something, there's, there's gifts there, there that if we look, we can, we can experience that. And one way I talked about suffering is because again, whatever word you want to use, consciousness, God, um, would be incapable of suffering. And, and so in a way, suffering is, is, is a kind of gift to God because it's every new experience we have, whether, whether it's surprise or laughter, laughter is a great gift to God because, you know, if you were all knowing and all, what could be funny? I mean, but if you have to forget a little bit or, you know, you, I, a punchline wouldn't work unless you could forget for a while. And so by forgetting, we have humor and there's a whole, uh, all, the, all the things that make the human trip worth the, the time and, and the experience. And they all come down to things that um, we could look at as kind of this gift to God. I'm so glad you said that because there's so many enlightened beings and they're, they're mirthful, they're happy, they're laughing. I mean, the Buddha was like laughing all the time and 
Um, Rhonda Burns has a book, uh, The Greatest Secret, and she talks about just all these enlightened beings and and there's mirth, there's laughter there. You know, it's not this big, heavy, challenging thing because it's when when you when you're headed in that direction of 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 the veils coming off, you know, it's the cosmic joke, right? <laughs> and, and the wonderful thing about humor is, of course, to the left brain, it makes no sense. This is why if you look in psychology, we don't really have good theories of humor. No one wants to touch it. I mean, because we just can't we can't use the processes of the left brain to figure out humor because it's a it's almost like a mystical experience. I didn't We're not know sure that. Why. That's so interesting. It's how who could even speculate what makes us laugh? It, it's 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 just like part of the mystical experience. But you know, when when you start really, um, uh, I think Alan had a good line on this. He said, "We suffer because we take seriously what God meant as a joke." And so once you can transform that anxiety into laughter, which really starts happening when you start distancing your consciousness from the processes of the left brain. Like I said, it's so strange that you can take all the suffering and look back on it with a sense of humor. And and then even when you get good at recognizing that the voice in the head isn't who you are, and then sometimes the voice in the head will say things and it's, you can't, you'll just start laughing <laughs> because you'll, you'll be like, wow, that was Really funny. <laughs> I love that. Chris, how do people find your programs? How do they find out about you? Um, I, 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 you know, everybody wants to turn off. Well, I, I want to turn off the chatter. <laughs> I think most people do. Um, but uh, to experience more of that, uh, that uh, right brain uh, experience and, and dial back that left brain, how do, how do people find you? So I have a YouTube channel, just uh, Chris Niebauer, PhD. And the YouTube channel's where I really uh, get weird. Oh, I love <laughs> I just, it. I just let a lot of, I, I go to places that um, I probably can't, I don't go in the books. And so some, well, some people think some of the stuff I write in the books is pretty weird and out there. <laughs> but if you really want to um, explore some strangeness, uh, check out the YouTube uh, channel. And um, then I have a, a website, just Chris Nebar, PhD, and also... Um, I mean, that's pr pretty much the main ways. I have Facebook page too, Catching Up With the Buddha. Do you Buddha. want to share any of the weirdness with us right here? Can we do that or or is it just, it's all there? Oh, it's all there and it goes all over the place. But I really dive into non-duality mm. because that's, the, when we look, you know, if you really want to say, well, what's what do we have going on in the skull? And the left brain, because it's so categorical, what do categories do? They divide. They, they're interested in taking up the universe and separating everything and not seeing the connections. And the right brain is all about connections. And so when we get, when we shift from a left brain world to a right brain world, all of a sudden, everything feels much more connected. And that's the essence of what non-duality is about, that underneath duality, there's unity. Yeah. And that unity is in the right brain. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, a lot of my videos play with that in ways that um, uh, may not seem super obvious. Uh, and a lot of the uh, stuff that I've been playing with recently is, well, it's all about not taking the left brain too seriously. So one of the things I've been focusing on maybe the last 20 videos or so have been about thinking itself. That, well, even the voice in the head. We So we take the voice in the head so seriously, but... I'll have these exercises where I'll have people uh, 
really take consciousness and examine the voice in the head. Like, like so, so you ask people to say, oh, I was up all night. Well, I was thinking I couldn't get this, you know, scenario out, out of my head. I, I was going to go into work tomorrow and I was just going to mess up my proposal. And I couldn't, I was like, okay, what, that voice in the head, let's really examine it. Are you sure it's even your voice? And, and then you start saying, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm not really sure it is my voice. Maybe I just think it's my voice. And, and then you say, well, how loud is it? You know, and it, is it, is it, you know, can you turn it up? Can you turn it down? And so when you start getting into it, like maybe the voice in the head itself. So I have a video on this. The voice in the head might itself be an illusion. Love it. And, and so, uh, that is a strange experience. And that's what I have been experiencing now for a while where I've, um, began to question whether thinking itself is even real. And so, um, Maybe in the next year, I'm hoping before the end of next year, my next book comes out. And and, in, and the book is all about the two worlds we live in. Mm -hmm. One is like the Peter Han, the immediacy of experience. One is reality. Anything that we are conscious of seems to be real. The other world is this abstract world of language, beliefs, ideas. And that may not even be real. The whole thing may be what the East called Maya. It all may be illusion. Absolutely. Well, if if you're if if everything if there's no duality, I mean, wow, that's yeah. what what's left. I mean, just pure awareness. And is, is there even that? Well, again, you know, whatever it is, and this is why words again, you know, we can talk and communicate. And well, like I have another video. In fact, I'm going to have this one probably come out this weekend. So you know. If it's all an illusion of all thinking, how do we talk? How do we communicate? And how do we get to the meaning of what each other's saying? Well, again, if it's all non-duality, if it's all one consciousness, that's how we really communicate. So we're so I always love this um, image of the fountain by the Bellagio, you know, the, the fountain where the, you know, it's one consciousness, one water, but it shoots up and it's, you know, a million individual droplets, mm. but then it goes right back down. Mm. So right now, where do those individual droplets, mm. but... We're going to, in the next moment, we'll be back and we'll be one consciousness again. I'm curious if you've read Mark Gober's books. Uh, no, I'm not familiar. He wrote a book called, uh, well, uh, five books, uh, and he's got a sixth one coming out. But the first one is An End to Upside Down th Thinking. And um, it's it's all the science that's behind the 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 fact that consciousness is not located in the brain. And um, he's like, well, he was summa cum laude graduate from Princeton. He's like, well, why didn't they teach this at Princeton? And unfortunately, there's just this bias in in science. <laughs> science is supposed to be non-biased, but there appears to be some. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, they, they, they uh, even the head of the American Statistical Association has come out and said, look, uh, the, the science is in, you know, uh, telekinesis exists, uh, telepathy exists, uh, precognition exists. So Occam's razor says the simplest answer is usually the best. And, you know, us all being the part of the same river um, like you say, the the fountain throws it up, and we're all experiencing being separate droplets. But um, it's pretty hard to explain the the science that has p values out to you know one in a billion billion <laughs> that suggests otherwise. So that book is probably the the finest book I've ever read that sort of puts a big red bow on all that science. You guys should connect. I'll I'm be happy to introduce you. Yeah, it sounds like I, so. So much of my work is people say, "Well, you're a neuroscientist," and I'm like, "Well, you know." 
oh, the, the left right brain stuff is great. Neuroscience is awesome as a pointer. It, I, I don't take it, you know, as absolute truth because the absolute truth is consciousness. And there, I, I, can, I can find no truth outside of consciousness. And then you say, well, how does the brain give rise to consciousness? That's a neuroscience thing. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm, I mean, there's a reason we have never been able to find consciousness in the brain. And, uh, and it's probably because we have it backwards. Rather than uh, brains giving rise to consciousness, it's probably more likely a simpler explanation that there's consciousness that's giving rise to what we call the material world. There's this great Eastern uh, story about, because uh, there's there's like four different branches of um, yoga. There's this kind of yoga, that kind of yoga, bhakti yoga, and they all practice totally different ways of being. And so they're all out wandering in the forest one day and there's a horrible storm and they all run for shelter in what's left of a, of a monastery. And there's like one little area where they can all huddle together under the storm and and God shows up and he's like, they're like, oh my gosh, this is blissful. This is wonderful. He says, they're like, God, why haven't you showed up before? We've been working so hard all of our lives. We've sacrificed, we've beat ourselves, we've helped others. And he says, it's the first time I've gotten all you idiots together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I love those stories. And um, you probably heard this one that it's a classic, but it really represents the left and right sides of the brain where, you know, the God and God and the devil are walking along and God, or, um, God says, well, there's truth. And then the devil says, let me organize it. And I think that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> right, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, it's just the left brain, you know? So we have, con we have this beautiful, probably beyond our appreciation because the left brain is always telling us like, look, consciousness is just something created by the brain. But the truth of this situation, like we are conscious beings and when you, the mystery of con being a conscious being should be so intense that we should run down the street, like just be continuously mystified by, I can't believe I'm conscious. I'm like, I am a conscious being. And I will tell people, I say, look, you know, I will give you fame, money, whatever you want. All you have to trade is your consciousness. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, so you're a, con you're a zombie, but you're rich and famous but you're not aware of any of it. No one will ever take that deal. And what that shows us is you already have something that's more valuable than anything you can imagine. You have something right now just as being a conscious being and you wouldn't trade that for anything. That's precious. And I love Einstein says, you know, you've, there's one of two ways to live. Either everything's a miracle or nothing is. Well, yeah. heck, it's way more fun living as if everything's a miracle. <laughs> Oh my God. I am so delighted that you joined me today. Um, I, you know, I could talk to you for a month. <laughs> me too. I, I... Um, so I'm really glad uh, you joined us and shared your wonderful knowledge with our listeners. What's the name of your next book? Do you know yet? No, it always comes last. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Um, anyway, if you got value from this, please click subscribe so other people can find us. Uh, leave us a note and tell us what you thought about the interview. Anyway, we'll, we'll catch you on the next episode of Next Level Healing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Next Level Healing. Please like, subscribe, and let us know how this helped you. How can it be even more life-changing? We love hearing from you. And if you're eager to upgrade your life, click the button here or go to consultterra.com and get your free customized GPS map. Get the coordinates for where you are now and where you wanna go. Clients consistently report it's faster and easier than they thought possible.
Remember, you were meant for more, and it is available to you. See you right here next week for our next episode.